I know you. You are afraid to speak up. You are scared of what other people think of you. And you blame yourself for what happened to you. I know how it feels because I've been there. If you found me, I'm so grateful you are here. This podcast will give you hope. And I'm your host, Anna Maidanova. And I'm going to hold your hand and provide the guidance. It's time for you to find your why and turn your experience into your biggest power. This is your time now. So lock your door, put your headphones in and enjoy. Nikki Patrick, welcome yes. to the world's best trauma recovery podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Nikki, I'm so glad to have you on my podcast because your story is incredible and it is a, such a in, inspiring and empowering for those who went through a sexual uh, childhood sexual abuse and uh, being addicted to being addicted being yeah. and trying to escape and Nikki I would really love to hear more about your story but before I want to I want to ask you if you could tell us what what is your purpose in this life hmm. I feel like my I've been on a journey uh, searching for what my purpose is these past few years and I definitely feel as if my purpose in this life is to help others heal from their trauma as well um, and find a way out of the darkness. I was stuck in the darkness for many, many years. Um, and I didn't know how to get out of it. And so I just kept um, trying to escape any way that I could. And finally, I was brought to my knees. You know, you reach bottom and there's nowhere else to go. Um, so it was either die or, or live or choose life. And so... I feel like now that I've been able to successfully pull myself out of that, um, I want to help others do the same. What an amazing purpose. And how did you come to this point, Nikki? Could you tell us a bit more about your childhood and how yes. everything was happening? Yes, I would love to. Um, it's finally a story that I can tell without any emotional charge behind it. Um, and... I was, so I was the firstborn of my mom uh, and my mother and father, they married very young. Uh, they weren't probably ready, but my mom came from a very abusive home, uh, alcoholic home, um, where there was a lot of narcissism, a lot of physical abuse, mental abuse, emotional abuse. And from what I'm understanding, cause she's no longer with us, she was also sexually abused. And she was, it's rumored that she was uh, passed around, knowingly passed around to my grandfather's friends um, as a young teenager, so they could have their way with her. Um, and so I believe that her trauma, uh, her unprocessed trauma was the reason why she uh, behaved the way she did and raised me and my brother the way she did which was very in a very dysfunctional way. She just never, um, back then, 
in the in the 60s and the 70s, you didn't really um, admit to having mental illness. You didn't really know there was no help. You know, there was no real help for people who had been through that type of trauma. And to even admit it would be admitting weakness. And that I think was a belief of hers um, that she didn't want to look at that, you know. Uh, so she herself um, did a lot of drugs to cover up uh, her pain. There was a lot of manipulation, a lot of paranoia, a lot of, um, there's a lot you know, going on with her that was unable to be treated. And so when I tell this story, I want to start off by saying that I have come to a place where I've been able to forgive my mother um, and, and love her and understand uh, and have compassion and empathy for her as an abused person, you know, um, as a victim of trauma um, and childhood trauma. When I was born, she had married my father to escape the farm that my grandparents lived on. They, we grew up on a working farm. We had a thousand hogs and 40,000 chickens and um, horses and cows that it was very big um, ordeal. And so uh, she needed to get out of that life. So she married my father who was in the military. And so it seemed like a really good way out. but they did not get along at all. Um, she had me and then two years later had my brother. Um, and she was not prepared at eight. She, I, she was 18 when she had me. She was not prepared, I think, for the responsibility of a child. And I was a very hyper child. I was very active. Um, I was into everything. And I think that also uh, added a lot of stress to her life. So my mother, um, she was a very, for the first seven years of my life, she was like a practicing witch. And then she became this born again, Bible thumping Christian. And uh, I think she was in the Pentecostal uh, denomination of that. And so after my father and hers marriage was so violent, he broke her jaw. They were always fighting. Um, they were always throwing things. And I remember dishes being broken. I remember um, my father, you know, he was a workaholic. He worked a lot. He wasn't home to give her attention and things like that. But also my father had his own issues as well. He drank, he was an al uh, alcoholic and he, um, he would be very, uh, controlling. We weren't allowed to make noise when we ate at the dinner table. We couldn't make noise when we drank anything. And so I was, I think, five and my brother was three. I remember this, um, this memory of my father, my brother making noise, you know, when he was eating, smacking his lips and, and making noise. And my father had, I guess, told us so many times. So he snatches my brother up and beats the shit out of him. Uh, and I was powerless. I was screaming and crying for my brother and trying to protect him. And there was, you know, this big, huge fight. And I just remember, you know, everything being ruined, um, going, you know, having to go to bed and, and not eating dinner. And so um, those types of that was, it was that kind of violence in the home, always yelling, always screaming. There was no safe place. Uh, when I started kindergarten, it was only a half day, but I didn't want to go. Um, I didn't want to 
even though home was violent, I didn't want to be away from home. I was very traumatized as a young child, but not knowing that, you know, I mean, this was in the 70s. So um, they finally divorced when I was six. And uh, my mother immediately uh, went to the next guy. Um, and she married him and he was a big time drug dealer. And um, she was, I think she was doing drugs. I, I don't know. She kept it very secret, but I'm pretty sure from what people tell me, she was on drugs and she was doing a lot of cocaine. And so that made her very um, violent as well. So we, I mean, I remember getting beat with extension cords and hairbrushes and shoes and whatever she could hit us with. Um, there was one time where I was playing in the front yard, um, just minding my business. And I had this little metal milk crate, you know, and I was playing with my doll babies in this, you know, milk crate. And the dogs come running around from the backyard. They had let the dogs out and they trampled over me. And I was pushed into this metal milk crate and my ribs were broken while well, I was crying and crying and like upset. And my mother comes and she smacks me in the face and she says, pull it together. You have, or, you know, before I give you something really to cry about. And she didn't know at the time my ribs were broken. Um, but I remember going into my room and thinking, why doesn't she love me? Why, how could, how could she, how could she be like this to her daughter? How could, how could she not love me? And I assigned that meaning. I, I, I remember thinking I hated her and I was so angry and I hated her. And I was, I, I just sobbed and cried and, um, laid there in my bed in pain. And I just remember thinking, I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. And, um, it wasn't until hours later that I was finally taken to the hospital and they did x-rays and found out that I had broke my ribs. So of course, then she was all apologetic. It was like this, this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with her. You never knew what you were going to get. And I had to quickly learn how to gauge a room when I walked in because I never knew if she was going to be nice or if she was going to be this raging, uh, angry person, you know. Um, that marriage didn't last long. And then she moved on to the next uh, marriage. We moved a lot. Um, I went to a different school every year. We oftentimes I would come home and there wouldn't be any lights. The electric would be turned off or there would be an eviction notice on the door because uh, we wouldn't have been able to pay the rent. And so we lived in people's basements. I remember living in a basement of a friend's house and it would flood when it would rain. So we were on pallets and that were just a little bit above the floor on with sleeping bags. And this was our bed. And then water would come in and flood our whole sleeping area. So it was, it was very much, there was no security or stability in my life as a child. And so I was expected to go to school and learn and, and pay attention and focus. And I just couldn't do it. Like I was really struggling in school. And because I was expected to bring home good grades and there was no understanding of what I was experiencing at the time, um, I would get in trouble. I would get beat if I didn't bring home, if I wasn't on honor roll or bring home a good grade. So I learned quickly how to cheat um, and how to just get by, you know, with the skin of my teeth. And uh, so the third husband was a very mean and violent man. 
um, this is when she became the born again Christian. And we were going to, we, there was a church, it's local to here. We had to go to church every time there was church. Everything, uh, because she was a practicing witch before she became a Christian, everything was about spiritual warfare. Everything was about demons. And um, she took us to be exercised by a priest and have the demons removed from us. Um, every punishment then became in the name of God. Um, you know, it was very sick, very sick and twisted. We had a, she had a paddle, <laughs> the paddle was painted on the paddle was a little girl sitting on a bench looking sad. And it said, spare the rod, spoil the child. And that was the paddle she beat us with that they, well, they beat us with. And so they would line, uh, so it was me and my brother, but then my mother said, oh, I can help other children. Uh, through this church and so she took in other troubled kids not through the state but through this dysfunctional church you know and thought she was doing God's work um, and there was 11 of us at one time in the house and they used to line us up and just beat us for you know spank us with this paddle if one person was bad we all got in trouble she made us um this is so crazy. She made us uh, write down. We had an assignment one time. She said, everybody sit down at the table. She made us write us uh, the worst punishment we could possibly think of. And she was like, if you don't do it right, you're going to get in trouble. So I wrote um, 10 wax with the paddle by each child to the person who got in trouble. And so my stepbrother had gotten in trouble so badly that he had to pull out of this. They called it, the, it was like this wicker angel that sat on the mantle. It was a, just a tchotchke piece, a little mantle piece, you know? And so she put all her folded up pieces of paper inside of this angel and called it the angel of death. And he had to pick out of that and he picked that one. And so we all had to, to beat him with this paddle. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, he must be hurting so bad. I'm going to hit him lower on his legs. So it just to give his butt some rest, you know? And so, um, after it was over, of course, he couldn't go to school for a week because he was bruised. He couldn't even sit down. He had to lay on his stomach. And so I got in trouble. It was my fault that he couldn't go to school because I hit him lower on his legs and I bruised him. And then it was the kids, the other kids were like, well, who wrote that? And I was like, well, I did, you know, it was just following the rules. So I became the, you know, that was my fault as well from their perspective. So a lot of things were blamed on me throughout um, this whole experience, you know, of, I tried to run away and I was always brought back. Um, then finally, uh, I, when I was like, I think 13 or 14, um, their marriage wasn't working out. And again, we had been moving here and there and here and there. And I think at 13, 14, I smoked pot for the first time. And like right after that, I did some other drugs. I tried cocaine, I tried meth. And so that was the beginning of my drug use to escape. And so instead of getting any kind of help, um, I just 
use drugs. And so starting from like the age of 14, I became sexually active. I became, uh, you know, I started using drugs. I started partying all the time. This was like in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, I became, I had to start working at 13 to help pay the bills because she had left him um, finally. And she got with another guy who was 11 years younger than her. Um, so she kept getting with these men over and, you know what I mean? It was, a, she couldn't be alone. It was always had to be validated by some form of a relationship with another man. And we came second to that. And so there was a lot of times where we didn't have food. We ate, like, I remember there was a week where we had zucchini every single day. That's it, nothing else, because that's all they could afford to get from like the local farmer's market or whatever food banks you know what I mean? So it was very, food was very scarce. Um, and I remember finally when I started working, she would take my paychecks and she would be like, you have to start helping to contribute to the household at 13 years old. I wasn't even legal to work. And I was working under the table at a restaurant, washing dishes to help out with the family. So very quickly, um, responsibility was dumped on my shoulders as a child. I remember uh, at 10 years old, she um, took in a brother, two brothers, one was two and the other one was four days old. The mother was in prison and she had the baby in prison and my mom took the baby in. Well, at 10 years old, it was my responsibility to get up for midnight feedings, to change the baby, to take care of the baby because she had to get up and work all day long. Thank God my stepfather was a truck driver and he was gone for the whole week. He would only be home on the weekend. So that was great because as long as he wasn't in the house, it was great. So at 10 years old, I knew how to cook full family dinners, um, do you know household chores and take care of this baby, this infant that was only 10 years or you know that was only four days old when we got him. And again, like still this, um, this very uh, angry perspective, you know what I mean, of God, a punishing God, a vengeful God, a judging God, you know what I mean? It was all that was what we were taught, you know? And so to me, that never resonated with me. I was like, that just doesn't make sense. This can't be right. So I, I separated from God when, as soon as I was, as soon as she left him and that was no longer her, her thing anymore, I was like, screw this. I'm out of this religious stuff, you know? Um, and I really like, I really thought like, what kind of God would allow me to go through this? You know, what kind of God would, would be okay with this, you know? And so I really, um, separated myself even further from God. And I started to act out, uh, sexually. Um, the, there is some instance now I can't remember everything, but I know that there was always people around. She was partying a lot and there was people in and out of the house and there was men around who, uh, were inappropriate you know, with me as a child. And I would always, you know, feel uncomfortable and get up and run away, but they were very touchy feely in an inappropriate way with a child, you know? And what had had my experience with sexual abuse is my father um, inappropriately touched me as well. Um, made me feel very uncomfortable. Um, he used to make me massage his legs and all the way into the groin area. And then he would want to do mine. Same. You know, 
Yes. And, and so when he would do that to me, he would slide in between, you know, my lips down there. And so finally I had had enough and I was just like, I can't take this anymore. And I told my mom and I begged my mother not to call the police. I begged her. I was like, I just don't want to go back over there. Please just remove me. You know what I mean? I just don't want to go. Now he denied it. Every, no, and on uh, once again, I'm, you know, I was blamed my stepmother, my brother, my stepbrother, everybody, because he denied it. I was just causing trouble because at this time, by this time, I'm really troubled. You know, I'm getting into trouble. I would I had run away a few times. I wasn't doing that great in school. I was just acting out, you know, just trying to get the attention that I needed. But she had was so good at manipulation and brainwashing that she had us terrified of social services coming in and, oh, if they take you away, it's going to be way worse than what you have here and the fear of the unknown, you know? So as I tried to heal from that, I ended up uh, on some psych meds and that didn't go over well. And I ended up in um, the psych ward for trying to take too many of my pills. I wanted to die, you know? And so that was at, um, I think, 14 was my first time in an institution. It was the beginning. Then 15 was my first time in rehab. And I tried to stay clean after that, but it just, I just wasn't in the right environment. I was doing a lot of LSD, a lot of drinking. Um, I was doing all manner of drugs uh, to escape and to get away, you know? The, this fourth husband that my mom was with, he was a crackhead. He liked to smoke crack and uh, he drank alcohol and he would spend our money and he ended up ripping off one of the bigger drug dealers. And so we had to move out of state. And so we moved to Tennessee, which totally, you know, turned my world upside down again. I became more and more sexually active, seeking out this love and this attention and this affection from anybody who would give it to me, you know, um, boys, my age, of course, I didn't really go for older guys because I guess the father figures in my life had completely turned me off. So I wanted to be, you know, with guys, my age. Um, but I was totally like, I mean, I literally, I guess I, I guess she could say I was a slut, but, <laughs> but I was very, very sexually promiscuous. I didn't care if I was a side chick. I didn't care, you know what I mean? I was just, that's just who I was, you know? Um, so as time went on, finally, um, my mother, she hit me the last time when I was 16 years old. She, we had, my brother and I had told her, you know, with all the kids had gone home after, at this point, you know, now that she's with the fourth husband and, um, my brother and I had told her if, she, you know, if this the crackhead husband had gone out on a binger and he got in an accident, had to be life lighted. And we told her, it's like, if you take him back, we're leaving. Well, lo and behold, she takes him back. So we said we're leaving. And she didn't like that. So she tried to beat me with a stick and she had hit me like three times. And on the fourth time she went to hit me with it, I stopped her and I took 16 years of rage and anger out on her and I beat the shit out of her like I literally just went off and <laughs> my brother 
heard us fighting and he comes down with a baseball bat and he tells my mom, if you touch her one more time, I'm going to kill you. And so it really, cause my brother did that, you know, it woke her up, I guess. And so finally we were able to leave. Um, and she let us go. My grandparents uh, were happened to be in town. They had taken my brother on a summer long trip um, to Alaska from Tennessee and they were bringing him back. And I asked, could I please come live with them? And so I was able to leave that house and go live with them. It's, I was 16, he was 14 and we both left my mom at that time. Within, I started to do good, but I was still trying to escape. I had, I was going to school. I was getting honor roll. I had three jobs um, and I had a boyfriend and I still was just like in this go, 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 like flight, flight, flight. Like if I just keep myself busy enough, if I just keep myself, you know, uh, I won't have to feel these feelings. I won't have to, to feel this discomfort and this pain. And so, um, I had become, I had become my mom in a lot of ways, you know, uh, I didn't have any other example. I didn't have any other, you know, that was my conditioning. Um, my grandparents were also narcissistic alcoholics and dysfunctional. And so it didn't get m too much better. And when I was 17, I ended up getting pregnant and they kicked me out of the house and I went to, I know <laughs> yeah, at 17 and they kicked me out. They were ashamed of me. I was you know, uh, unwed uh, mother, teenage mother, and they just, you know, an abomination to God or whatever they wanted to call it. And so um, I ended up going to live with my aunt. They were going to put me in a home for girls in Baltimore because um, I live in Maryland and for girls who get pregnant and put their babies up for adoption and never see them again. And so I didn't want to do that. So my aunt was like, we'll help you put the baby up for adoption. And so I went to live with her in Costa Rica, which was great experience. I had a great time. But when it came to, I knew what I was doing was the best thing for my child by putting him up for adoption. Um, but it still hit me really hard. I felt like a failure as a woman, a failure as a, a mom, you know, but I knew I was terrified to be a mother, terrified. I knew I wasn't, I didn't have the skill set to properly raise a child. I didn't have the resources to properly raise a child. And I was not going to be responsible for messing up the life of another human being like mine had been. So I chose that. Um, I went into a deep depression, started you know, the addiction got worse. And so from then on, it was this cycle of dysfunctional relationship after dysfunctional relationship, abusive relationship after abusive relationship, um, drugs, more drugs, more partying. And then five years after I had my son, I had my daughter. I was 22 when I got pregnant. I was 23 when I had her. And the guy that I was dating was, <laughs> I found out that he was married with a fifth child on the way. And so I broke it off, I know. And two weeks later, found out I was pregnant. So I was going to put her up for adoption as well. But my mother had totally, like at this time, she had 
gotten clean. She was in AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. She was working steps. She had gotten a job. She was stable. She was like really doing it. And she was with this, she was with this new guy, the fifth husband, which I have to say, she ended up being with him for 25 years. So that was good. But she begged me, please don't give another one of my grandchildren up for adoption. I will take her and I will take care of her. So that's what I did. And after that, I felt like even more of a failure as a woman, as a mother, uh, and I spiraled even deeper out of control. And for the first time I tried heroin and that led me down a very, very scary path. Um, I lived, I moved to Baltimore. It was very plentiful there. Um, I ended up on the streets. I ended up living on the streets, sleeping in abandoned house. Um, they call them abandoned minions, abandoned minions, like, cause they have a lot of abandoned row homes there. Um, I ended up prostituting myself um, and doing all manner of horrible things to my myself. I shot up, I, um, you know, I had sex for money. And so finally I cleaned myself up from that stint and I go to rehab for a little while. I get out, I move back in with my parents. My daughter is now four or five and I decide I'm going to go to college and I go, I get in college in Florida. So I pack up everything and I drive to Florida. And I start over and I, you know, um, I started in graphic and web design and I was doing really good. I met a guy. I thought he was the one girl just knew it, of course. <laughs> and um, we were together for two years and I was doing good. I was, you know, doing good in school. I had a job. I had just landed a job as a graphic artist. And I thought really like I'm doing good, you know. And then I got hit by a car while riding my bicycle and they put me on the pain meds and it activated my addiction again that I had been clean from now for probably like close to seven or eight years. I had not done any uh, opiates, you know, but I still would smoke pot and have occasional drink, you know, if I, you know, hang out and stuff like that. I just didn't do any of that. But when I got on the pain meds, it started that cycle again. It woke up the dragon, mm -hmm. so to speak. So then my then boyfriend, who I thought was the one, started behaving oddly and doing more drugs and like doing them behind my back. And so finally I was like, whatever is going on with you, you need to tell me. And what he told me was that he was HIV positive. And he had known the whole time. So we've been together two years. And so I thought for sure I had it. And I did, I don't like, I don't God, for the grace of God, I never got it. You know, I don't understand. I don't know, but I'm grateful, you know, but I thought that I had it. So I decided to stay with him because who else was going to love me with that? That's what I thought. This was my thought process. Nobody's going to want to be with me. You know, so I ended up staying with him and we just used protection because I kept testing negative, but I was like, oh, it's going to, it's got to show up sometime. And because I was negative, I couldn't get any support. I couldn't go to support groups. I couldn't get any like help in this area because they were like, well, you're not positive. So we're not going to help you. But I'm like, but you don't understand, you know? So I, again, here I am like 
no help, no support. I am, I was going to um, psychologists and psychiatrists and I was on medication. They said I had bipolar, anxiety disorder, ADHD, and they put me on a myriad of medications. I was, I was, I mean, I have tried every psych med, I think that was out at the time to try before I realized that none of this shit's working. <laughs> you know, I'm still on this roller coaster and it's terrible. I, so after that, I end up relapsing again. And this time, instead of being the junkie on the street, I decided that I was going to be in the sex industry because it afforded me the amount of money I needed to, um, to support my drug habit. I didn't have to deal drugs. Um, I just, so I became a dominatrix. I did erotic massage. I worked in the adult entertainment business in that aspect. Um, and I had power over men that I never had before. And that power fed me my ego a lot. And so underneath though, was a lot of guilt and shame. There was a lot of guilt and shame. There was a lot of, um, just lower level consciousness feelings um, assigned. I, I thought that I was a victim. I was a victim. I was still blaming everything in my past. I was still blaming, making excuses for everything. And that kept me stuck. And finally, finally, I ended up in, in different crazy, you know, I would just I went like a rolling stone. I would end up here and here and here. It didn't matter. I'd pick up and go like that, you know? Finally, I end up somehow, I'm driving large quantities of marijuana across the country from Arizona to Florida. And I got caught in Texas. Yes. And I got, um, I got probation, but screwed that up royally. And so they came and picked me up in, you know, Florida and I had to go, I got five years in prison. And so I ended up going to prison in Texas, which is, I don't recommend that at all, but it, it turned out to be the thing that helped me begin to change. And so I look at it as a blessing now, whereas in before, you know, um, I did not, and I was the victim, but looking back at it, I see now where that was the beginning of the transformation. I had hit a bottom that, um, and this wasn't the last time I used, but it was the beginning of the change because part of my parole answer was to, um, I, I made parole because I just had a marijuana charge in Texas. That's not a big deal. You know, they deal with a lot of marijuana. I only had 30 pounds. That's a third degree felony. So really it doesn't, it didn't carry that much weight. So with all the overpopulated prisons, they were happy to let me go. Um, and my parole answer was an in-prison therapeutic rehab where they did behavioral modification and um, cognitive intervention. And so I began to learn there how to take responsibility for my choices. I learned there what it was to be codependent. I learned there what it was to, um, you know, have these cognitive distortions in the mind. And it fascinated me. It really did. And I was just like, I remember when I first got there, we had groups every day. And the, <laughs> there was a group where they started talking about boundaries. I had no idea what a boundary was, Anna. Like, I was like, what, what the hell are they talking about? 
Yeah, and I that was yeah. <laughs> that was my first experience with a boundary. So fast forward, you know, I I got out again and and I was doing good for a little while, but then relapsed again. This time I had found meth. And I'd never done meth before, but I found it this time and again, repeated the whole cycle and ended up back in jail. Um, and I honestly, like this, it was January 19th of 2016 and I was trying to pass a bad check and I was on parole and um, it was a misdemeanor charge and I got arrested at the bank. I got caught. So I knew, I thought, I was like, oh my God, I'm going back to prison. This is it. I'm going back to prison. Uh, that's it. And I made a decision right then and there. I was like, I am done. I am done trying to do it this way. And if I go back to prison, it's okay. I'll be okay. You know? And I had just surrendered it. And I was like, I'm done with this lifestyle. It has beaten me up enough. Uh, and I felt there was this feeling, overwhelming feeling of, um, this is your last chance. You either get it together here or you're going to die, you know? Um, so I did, and I've been clean ever since. Uh, it's been six years now and I have, yes, thank you. Congratulations. Um, and I picked myself up out of that and I, I immediately started going to NA, Narcotics Anonymous. I started, I got a sponsor. I started working the steps. I started to really, um, really pour myself into it. Like uh, the same way I chased the drugs, I chased my recovery. In that process, I was able to finally move back home. They finally let me transfer my parole to Maryland. And I was finally able to be back home with my family after 25 years of being gone from my hometown here. And so in that process, about a year clean, I had a year clean and my, I told my sponsor, I don't ever think I'm going to be successful. I just don't think it's in the cards for me. You know, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. You know, I, I, I just, that's not going to be me, you know? And she says, well, I think you need to look up what the word means and um, research what other successful people are doing to be successful. So I, I did it. I was willing, you know? and open-minded. So it opened up, like I just kind of went down the rabbit hole of personal development. And it intrigued me that there was these people who had nothing, they started with nothing and had created success for themselves. And in, in that, what is your definition of success? You know, I had to, that's changed for me in several, you know, over the years, several times where I thought, oh, money equaled success or fame equaled success or having these things equaled success. Now I realize that it's so much more than that. And so I've been on that path, I think about two or three years into being in recovery, I learned how to, I became a Reiki master. I learned how to started doing energy work. I felt really drawn to that. And then a few years, no, it's going on two years. It'll be two years in July 15th. I was hypnotized for PTSD. I was hypnotized for, um, I was having flashbacks. I couldn't control them. It was really really the meds that I was on, I was on all kinds of meds, not helping at all. And so I saw a hypnotist and 
I knew the meds weren't helping. So I was like, it was, uh, I think I was on Prozac and Lamictal as a mood stabilizer and an antidepressant. And you can't just stop those things. You know, you can't, it, your brain has to reuptake and go through the process of beginning to make its own brain chemicals again, its own chemicals for that. So I was determined though. I said, this is going to work for me. And I, after that session, I got off of those medications with no withdrawal, um, which was amazing. And so that what the transformation I had from that one session was so profound. I said, I have to learn this. I have to help other people with this, you know? And so I began to uh, study hypnosis. After that, uh, I think a year later, as I was almost finishing my hypnosis uh, training, I got into sound healing. And um, I was experiencing a lot of physical pain in the body. And um, I had a coach and she said, you know, you, you should you should look into sound healing and whether you find a practitioner, you learn how to do it yourself. And I was like, okay. So I started learning that modality. And now fast forward to now, I have my own office. I am a certified hypnotherapist and a sound healing practitioner and a Reiki master teacher. And I help other people overcome their trauma now. Nikki, what a story. What a story. I just want to add something. I'm so, I'm so grateful I've met you. Me too. Because, <laughs> and hypnotherapy helped me with my depression and anxiety and my shame and yes. all the fears. And that's, that's how I, I, I know the power of hip, uh, hypnotherapy. So I've also wanted to use this technique this this method to help people to free themselves of the tyranny of these feelings and that's how i met you i honestly i don't know where to start i have so many questions sure nikki you've mentioned that you've forgiven all the people that were involved yes in um in your trauma why is it so important to forgive mm-hmm. The forgiveness isn't for the person who did the harm. The forgiveness is for you. It's for me. I forgive so that I can be free of that. I realized that I was living in a story I was telling myself at this point. None of the past could be changed. There was nothing I could do to change that, but I could change how I looked at it. And as I began to change and reframe how I looked at the past and those events, things began to change. And so I let go of that story. I let go of being a victim. I surrendered it to my higher power, which, by the way, I have been able to establish a very, very close connection with my higher power, with God. I love, you know, I love God and uh, very spiritual. And, um, and that's really uh, what has helped me a lot the most is the spiritual side of, um, of learning how to forgive. I don't participate in organized religion, um, but I do love God. I love Jesus. Um, I love his teachings. Um, and I love, I love that. I love that love is the way, you know, unconditional love is how we heal. It heals all wounds. And so being able to forgive and forgive myself 
most of my flashbacks were of what I did, not what was done to me, but what I did to somebody else or what I did to myself, you know, and I was tormented by that. And it wasn't until I was able to forgive myself and surrender that and let it go that I was able to really heal and, and move forward. Nikki, how is your relationship with your children now? Have you, have you been able to reconnect with your son? Yes. Three years ago, my son, I found my son and I'll tell you, it was amazing. It was an amazing thing. I got to meet him. He was uh, 25 years old and he had been looking for me too. Um, and so he came to visit and we had a huge family reunion. Everybody came and they all met him and, you know, uh, welcomed him. And then, uh, six months later, I was getting married to my husband and, uh, he, he was in the wedding and he walked down the aisle next to my daughter and it was such a happy ending. (laughs) You know, it was like, wow, look at this story. And my daughter and I are best friends. She's my best friend. I was always able to stay connected to her because she did live with my mom. Um, There was times where I was disconnected because my drug use was so bad. It was just best that I disconnected or I wasn't, there was times where I wasn't welcome, you know, and I understand that now because I was totally strung out. And so um, she never stopped loving me. She never stopped. Um, she, she always forgave me. And I think that really pissed my mom off because my mom was angry with me and my mom held those resentments and she didn't know how to forgive. Unfortunately, my mom passed of cancer, which I believe um, she was totally ate up because of unforgiveness, bitterness, and all of those, those negative lower level consciousness that, that caused that vibration that caused the body to you know, if you don't, if you like, what is it? What is it? Uh, an emotion buried alive never dies. It festers, it boils, and it makes us sick. And I really believe that that is the source of cancer, of disease, is these unprocessed emotions festering in, in, in the field, you know, in the quantum field, in our bodies. And so, yeah. I'm so happy to hear this. And the power of forgiveness does this magic to your to your world, to your relationship with yes. uh, um, with your family, with your friends, with yourself. I can tell you that all of my relationships are healed. I yeah, all of my relationships have healed. Um, it's it's a it's miraculous and it's wonderful. You know, people trust me again. Um, I can trust them again. I can trust myself, you know. So it's been a, a wild, miraculous ride of wonder. You know, I, I like sometimes I sit in, I sit somewhere like in my car if I'm driving a lot and I think about how great things are. Like they're freaking wonderful. You know, I couldn't have asked for anything better. And there, you know, people are like, oh, I don't know what my purpose is. And I always used to be afraid it would be something I didn't like, but no, this is amazing. It doesn't even feel like work. It's awesome. I know exactly what are you talking about, Nikki? (laughs) (laughs) And you know, I can resonate with uh, the story about your mom being in a relationship and seeking validation 
because my mother grown up in a loveless relationship and my my grandmother hated her and still still does mm-hmm. wishing her death all the time she sees her and when my mom married my father my biological father she was 18 at those time also trying to escape from her family home she put him on the first place literally she was in a very independent relationship with him and i believe it's because she didn't get a help that needed neither she knew to be honest neither any one of us know because the 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 power of the shame and you know uh, and the pain it just it doesn't allow you to go and talk to someone yeah what is your definition of codependent relationship and how do you how do you realize that yes this is this is the codependent relationship so a codependent relationship is when somebody is uh, dependent on the other person for their validation that they need that person to validate them to make them feel like they are enough and so i if, if in a codependent relationship I would, um, I would do these things, do, 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 let me do this for you and that for you and this for you and that for you with the expectation that I was going to get some sort of fulfillment in return. And so a lot of times that fulfillment wasn't returned and I was disappointed and angry and bitter and resentful because I had these unrealistic expectations. Well, I did all this for you, you know? So it's two people, it's two people that aren't whole, they aren't healed. Uh, that come together. So you 50-50 coming together still doesn't make a hundred. You have to have a hundred and a hundred, you know, to come together and, and make a whole. So anytime we come into a relationship unhealed and we still are seeking um, validation outside of ourselves, um, we are coming not at a hundred percent. Um, we are, uh, it's going to have unrealistic expectations for our partner and we aren't going to be able to find that, find that inner peace. Like, I don't, I don't exactly know how to say it, but I, I can tell you like this. I love my husband very much, but if he were to die tomorrow, God forbid, my world would not be over. Yeah. Okay. It would not devastate me because my internal validation now comes from me. Yeah. I am enough. I am worthy. I am, I am complete in here so that I don't need anything outside. Anything outside coming in is, is to compliment me is to add to, you know, not take away from. So if anybody is in a codependent relationship, they're going to never feel like they're enough or satisfied because they're always expecting that. Whenever we expect to get validation from somebody else, whenever we put out um, expectations, uh, we're always going to get let down because everybody's human, you know, and you're not a mind reader. You can't tell what I'm expecting, you know, unless I articulate it, you know, and usually we don't, we're just like, he should have done this for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. And I know, you know, I, I know for sure that my mother was in a codependent relationship with my stepfather because 
when I admitted, when I told her that I was sexually abused by, by him uh, in September 2021, she told me, I'm so sorry. I knew it. She knew, but she couldn't bear a thought of him uh. doing this to me. Neither she knew how to react on it. Neither she wanted to be alone. I'm just wondering, when you told your mom what was happening between you and your father, what was your reaction and how old were you? I was 11 years old and I told my mom and she was angry and she believed me because I, and I think she believed me because nobody believed her. Mm. Nobody believed her. She wanted to, she became the mama bear at that time. There, and, and my mom, as dysfunctional as she was, there were good times. She really had a good way of making these bad situations that we were in good. She and I learned that from her, how to be optimistic, how to look at things on the bright side, how to see the, the miracle in the, in the, in the bad, you know what I mean? How to see that silver lining. And so she, um, I had to beg her not to do anything because I just didn't want to go to court and be drugged through the mud and have to answer all these questions and say this and say that. And I loved my dad. I loved him. You know what I mean? He was, I was daddy's girl. I want to say, I don't think he meant to do it in a, in a intentional way like that, or he didn't realize that that's the area that he was touching. And I want to say those things, but honestly, I think that there was an element of, he did know, and he was inappropriate, you know? My dad and I have mended our relationship. He is still alive and we are close now. Um, we have, he's, he has apologized. He's asked for forgiveness. He has said, you know, I know I did wrong by you. You know, I know I should have been a better father. And so what are you going to, you know what I mean? What do you do when somebody admits it and owns it and says, please forgive me, you know? And so he's been a very supportive factor in my life, you know, now we don't ever talk about that. My brother had a very hard time when I first came home, he was still active in his addiction to alcohol. And so he basically brought it up, brought up the abuse, brought up that and called me a liar and said that I made it up and I wouldn't admit that I made it up because I didn't. And that's what he wanted. He wanted me to admit that I lied admit you made that up. And I didn't. And so because I stood my ground, he confronted my father. And this was just like a few, like five or six years ago. And so he brought it up again, which my dad and I, like I thought about talking to him about it, you know, like maybe you don't remember, you know what I mean? What happened, but this is what happened, you know, but I didn't. Um, but my brother ended up getting the help that he needed and he's been in recovery. So that I think is healed, you know what I mean? Um, he's experienced a lot of trauma as well. He's working through it in his own way, but yeah, it was, it was crazy. It was a crazy time. Oh, I was in rehab and I told them in rehab, I was 14 when I went to rehab or something, 14 or 15. And so I told them what happened. So they made us do an intervention in a circle where I had to confront him in front of everybody in the group and say, you touched me inappropriately. And it was so uh, I can't believe I went along with that. 
I can't believe I let them do that. It was so traumatic. It was so re-traumatizing, you know what I mean? And this was in 1990. So they really didn't have a lot of, you know, uh, the knowledge they do now about trauma. And so it was very re-traumatizing for me and the family and everybody, because my mom had to come, my dad had to come. I think my brother was there. Like, and so after that, we, I remember talking to my dad outside and he was like, Nikki, I just don't remember doing that. You know, I'm so sorry, but he was a drinker. So yeah. So it still was brought up even as much as five years ago. Well, at least it was brought, brought up. Yeah. Because many people will die <laughs> and oh, yeah. a secret with them and would never, ever feel free in their lives. Yes. Well, yeah, we'll always carry this burden. Yes. Nikki, what would be your best advice for someone who is going through a similar situation like you went through? My best advice, Anna, is to find a way to process it because you've you, you got to feel it to heal it. So find somebody who can help guide you through the process of of processing your trauma. Don't keep it a secret anymore. Don't keep it in. Our secrets keep us sick. Um, and so on the other side, and I know it's so hard to believe, it's so hard to believe when you're in the darkness that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, that there's freedom on the other side of that pain. But there is so much, like, please, if I could just instill anything on anybody listening, there's freedom on the other side. You can be free from that pain. You can be free from that, um, that memory. You can be like there, like I said, there's no emotional charge there. I can tell this story and not be messed up for the rest of the day or the week or whatever. I can tell this story now and it's not the story that I'm living anymore. I had to let that story go and start to tell myself a different, more serving story. You know what I mean? Like some of us get stuck in our stories. We get our trauma becomes our trophy. You know, who would I be without this trauma? It's our identity now. And so if that's you, if that's any of anybody who's listening to this and you can relate to that and you think, oh, maybe I am stuck in this story. Maybe there is a way out. Then please, please find somebody who can help you process the trauma because there's freedom. There's a way out. You don't have to live like this. It's not meant to be. It's not your plight in life. It's not the, you know, the path, you know, that you have to be on. You can change that at any time. We get choices, you know, in between stimulus and response lies our freedom to choose our response. There's that tiny moment in between what happens to us and how we respond. There's that space right there where we get to choose how it's going to affect us. We get to assign meaning to that. And that space is where we need to live in. That space right there and say, okay, that's how, like I never understood what they said, like nobody can make you feel any kind of way unless you let them, you know? That's what that means. I don't have to um, allow even my inner critic to beat me up, you know? And it will, the ego is, is a destroyer. Nikki, what are you still working on? What is, what is still left there for Nikki? Hmm. Well, now I'm working on uh, transcending the ego 
um, raising my level of consciousness. Um, and uh, so a lot of it is undoing the conditioning, the social conditioning, the process, you know, uh, of the past. Um, a lot of it is just undoing these uh, inappropriate core beliefs that have kept me in these cycles of dysfunction. So these, for example, this, well, like um, uh, emotional eating, mm. um, uh, keeping myself busy so that I don't have to, you know, deal. escaping. Yeah, escaping. Um, so, so just because you've processed the trauma doesn't mean now that there's those programs are still running in the subconscious mind. So that's what I'm working on is reprogramming the subconscious mind to be able to even be more efficient and more able to be present for the people that I am able to help. That's amazing, Nikki. It's a work in progress. It is. You know, it's a you, lifetime. Yeah, you <laughs> never, you never stop. Uh, no. There will always be something. But yes. at least, at least, what's the beauty of healing is that you can recognize that those negative beliefs, uh, limiting beliefs, and negative uh, self-talk, uh, running your life. Literally, mm-hmm. it's not about what's happening to you. It's about what message are you saying to yourself. Yeah. Yes. The most important thing you'll ever hear is what you tell yourself. It's exactly. Yep. (laughs) Nikki, where people can find you? I am online at uh, www.livinginthesolution.net. They can find my website there. Um, So living in the solution is the name of my business because I decided that that's where I wanted to be. And my level of consciousness is to choose to live in the solution today. I no longer want to live in the problem. So they can find me at livinginthesolution.net. Amazing. Nikki, it was such a pleasure talking to you. And I want to acknowledge you for your courage to share your story so authentically and, and so openly. And I know millions will resonate with your story. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I really am grateful that I've been able to be here today and share. If my, I keep, I always say, you know, people are like, oh, you know, aren't you ashamed to tell that part of your story? I said, if my story helps one person, then it's worth being told. I don't care about anybody else's judgment because it's just a projection of what's going on within them. You know, it's not me. I'm not affected by that. You know. <laughs> well, actually, as, as as soon as you say, as soon as you tell your story, the shame is disappearing. That's yes. true. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Nikki Patrick. Thank you for being here. I know it's not easy, but there is a part of you who is ready to take this journey all the way, and I can help. Reach out to me directly at Anna at AnnaMadeNova.com to get work. You can also connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn for more healing stories and magic. This journey isn't possible to do on your own, so make sure to like, subscribe, and review the podcast so we can help more people like you. If you have someone in your life who is struggling to overcome their trauma, this is something you can give them that truly can change the course of their life 
forever. We'll see you next time for another episode of the World's Best Trauma Recovery Podcast. And just remember, you are able to help yourself and you can do it right now.